you are at Founders FAQ, answers to all the possible questions of a founder. If you were to die tomorrow and have the chance to say like, were you happy with this direction? Then uh, if the answer is no, then you should pivot. But there are many people where even if it was, if it's not going as well as you thought it would go, but, but there are many people where they're working on something that's very interesting, like maybe you're saving lives or maybe you're really helping somebody with their personal finances or whatever. And if you had that opportunity to evaluate, like, are you happy with what you are achieving here? Then, and the answer is yes, then you should, you should stick with it. Welcome to Founders FAQ. Today, my guest is Elizabeth Yin. Elizabeth is a co-founder and general partner at Hustle Fund, a pre-seed fund for software entrepreneurs. Previously, Elizabeth was a partner at 500 startups where she invested in C-stage companies and ran a Mountain Accelerator. In a prior life, Elizabeth co-founded and ran an ad tech company called LaunchBeat. It was acquired in 2014. Hi, Elizabeth. Welcome to Founders of AQ. Well, thanks for having me. Uh, my, my first question is, uh, what do you look for founder startup with, especially on the pre-seed stage? Hmm. <laughs> well, so there are a couple of things. One is there's the founders, but then actually the business itself matters a lot. In fact, we have passed on so many wonderful founders um, who are very scrappy, hardworking, smart, because we didn't have conviction on the business. So I think it's really important to have both. Um, but if we just assume for a moment that, you know, the business is interesting, then in founders, what I look for, at least at the pre-seed stage, is resourcefulness, scrappiness, you know, focus on usually uh, customer acquisition for software ideas and and basically just clear thinking of, of how to go about things. And I know that that all sounds very vague, but you often find people who are not very focused, like they're trying to think of and do too many things at once when you have very limited resources, or sometimes you have people who um, – are not very resourceful in their thinking and spend too much money. And so there, there are a number of ways where people can sort of generally fit that, but not be so great in one of these areas. And we're really looking for focused, scrappy founders who move with speed and are generally frugal. Mm, I get it. And on the, on the term, uh, the founder track record, their background checks on those kind of things, how, how do you give importance to them? The track record? Yeah, track like, record of the founder. I, I don't care about that at all. Mm-hmm. Almost all the founders we back are first-time founders. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I get it. And um, on, on, uh, on the due diligence of founders, uh, how should founders make their own due diligence before uh, starting a startup? Like, uh, I have my own assets, core assets, and I'm starting a startup. And how should I set the right co-founder fit? What are the... Uh, what are the uh, really checklists to look for uh, to make the due diligence to get a new co-founder into a startup? Finding a co-founder is hard. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Well, 
I, I think that in some sense, it's a little bit like a marriage. It's hard to know whether you got it right in the beginning. But I think to the best that you can, a, a couple of thoughts. So one is on the character of the founder. So does the person seem honest, trustworthy? Can I rely on the founder? Is the person reliable? Is it, does the person show up on time? Does the person, you know, do what he or she says he's going to do? So that's one, one set of things. But then I think the other is, okay, assuming that you're working with a good person, um, I think it's really important for founders to have complementary skill sets. And it's not only complementary in actual work, like a developer and a marketer, but also a little bit in how people think. And this is where you want it to be complementary enough, but not lead to too many arguments. So, for example, if everybody thinks exactly the same, then you're not going to really get diversity of thought, and you may actually miss out on what the right thing to do is. It's like, you know, just in some sense, it's no different from asking yourself for advice all the time, but sometimes it's good to get another perspective. So you want somebody who thinks a little bit differently like you, like if you're a little bit more risk-taking, you may want somebody who's a little bit more cautious, but obviously not too much such that you're always in conflict. Um, so that's the second thing, just complementary skill sets. And then the last thing that I think is most important that a lot of people don't have when they first start their company is ability to directly communicate well. So I think there are people who are, who like to avoid conflict and so they do not like to bring up tough topics. And then there are people who are really combative in conflict and are not very sensitive. You want somebody who is very direct, but also is able to read people well enough such that they can deliver direct news and not create a, a problem every time. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, I get it. And, and you, you're investing a lot on pre-seed in early stages and most probably you, you see a lot on pivots. So what do you suggest for founders, uh, how to uh, how to approach the pivots? What's the right time for the pivots? Because it's pretty important for the company uh, success. <laughs> pivots are hard. <laughs> uh, here's why pivots are hard. Usually when people start thinking about a pivot, it's because the business is going okay, but it's not going well enough. But it, the reason it's hard is it's hard to know whether you should continue and maybe we'll get significantly better. And I can think of lots of examples actually of that happening. Or you think, actually, I should just stop this direction entirely and do something completely new, and I'm giving up a lot of what I've already invested my time and efforts into. And that's a big risk, uh, to give up something that is already sort of there for nothing, something that's been completely unproven. So that's why it's hard. Now, how do you decide? I think that this is where it's really challenging, and everybody has a different opinion on it, but my opinion on this is if – if the general direction is going okay, but you are not happy with it, like if you if you were to die tomorrow and have the chance to say, like, were you happy with this direction, then uh, if the answer is no, then you should pivot. But there are many people where even if it was if it's not going as well as you thought it would go, but but there are many people where they're working on something that's very interesting. Like maybe you're saving lives or maybe you're really helping somebody with their personal finances or whatever. 
And if you had that opportunity to evaluate, like, are you happy with what you are achieving here? Then, and the answer is yes, then you should, you should stick with it. So that's kind of my philosophical way of addressing that. <laughs> I get it. I get it. Perfect. And, uh, while while getting while getting investments, um, should founder really specifically select the right VC partner uh, before the round, maybe maybe the seed round or or the Series A round, because uh, that partner will join the board uh, if it's a price round. So what what do you think about it? I think the amount of time and relationship building a founder should spend in fundraising is dependent on the size of the round. So where we invest at the pre-seed stage, it's a very small round and we're a small check. So I actually don't expect anyone to build relationships with us early. And frankly speaking, we would kind of prefer not to because nobody really has any time for that, for such a small check. However, for our companies that are now going up for their Series A, like a $5 million or a $10 million round, then you should probably start building relationships at least a year in advance, um, if not even longer than that. So I think my general advice is if you've raised a pre-seed and then you've raised a seed, I would start building relationships for the Series A right after you close your seed. But I wouldn't spend much time building relationships for pre-seed or seed investors. I get it. I get it. And on, on the pitching side, um, for pre-revenue, uh, pre-revenue startups, what do you expect for the, from the founder to show up at the, uh, at the meeting? Like make you imagine something big or what, what do you want to see? <laughs> <laughs> I think I'm a little bit different from other investors. I know that a lot of investors want to understand the market size and, and that sort of thing. For me, because I've been a founder before, I know a lot of those market sizing activities are kind of stupid. Like you can always make your market size sound really good. And at the end of the day, either the investor believes that there is a real problem or real market there or or the investor doesn't believe that. And that's based on feelings rather than based on numbers. You can try to share as many numbers as you want about the market size, but that will not change how an investor thinks about it. So for me, I don't care about that at all. Um, for me, what I care about is I want to understand how a founder thinks about things. I do not expect a founder to have revenue or traction of any sort, but I do want to understand how does the founder think about the next steps so, for example, if we're talking about customer acquisition, even if the founder doesn't have any customers, how does the founder think that he or she can get the first three customers, the first 30 customers, the first 300 customers? And even though I'm sure a lot will change in there, how you think about it uh, actually says a lot because most people don't think about it, especially for customer acquisition. And most people will have a very generic answer like, oh, I'm going to take out ads or I'm going to write lots of blog articles. But most people haven't done the work to think through either, okay, I'm going to first do $1,000 experiments in Facebook ads and whatever works I'm going to double down in, and et cetera, um, and ideally have already done those experiments, or they haven't, you know, on the content side, for example, they haven't figured out, okay, this is how much it costs me to write an article, these are the top 1,000 keywords I want to rank for, and this is how much it will cost me to get there. Like, most people haven't done that level of work, and that is what separates I don't know, a founder in my mind who has thought through a lot of things and a founder who just hasn't. And it's not to say that somebody won't think about those things. Maybe maybe they will. But I think at the pre-seed stage, before you 
approach any investor, you should think in fairly good detail of what experiments you need to try, whether it's on the product side or on the marketing side, before you go and approach an investor. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I get it. And uh, while closing the run, there might be some negotiations about numbers. Uh, what do you suggest for founders just like focus focus on uh, when when the thing comes to that stage? Like uh, sometimes they focus on uh, the valuation, sometimes they focus on the amount of money they spend for the next two years. So what do you suggest for when when things come to that stage? Yeah. It's a good question. So I think the problem with valuations is that, it, especially at the early stages, it's not really based on anything except for supply and demand. And by that, I mean supply of how much money you're raising, the round, supply of the round, and demand of investors. And so, you know, if you have no demand from investors, uh, then it doesn't really matter how big of a round or how small of a valuation or how big of a valuation you want. It just doesn't matter, obviously. But if every investor wants to invest, then you have a lot of leverage in where your valuation can be. So it's really not based on anything except for that. And so there are, I think, two things that are important to consider. One is if you're going to fundraise, my recommendation is to really do it right. And by do it right, I mean, like, you you have to create urgency, and that is related to how many meetings you take with investors. The more meetings you take in a short time period, the more investors will be interested, and that will generate higher investor demand, so that way you can get whatever you want. I think you can be a wonderful company, but if you're not talking with enough investors, you're not going to be able to have much negotiation power. So that's thought number one. And thought number two is, okay, then also think about how much money you actually need to get to the next stage of your business. And, you know, if you're going from pre-seed to seed, then that amount actually could be really small. Basically, the seed stage, the difference between pre-seed and seed in my mind is, are you pre-seed, you're probably not generating much or any money. Seed is you're generating, you know, for a SaaS business, maybe $10,000 or more per month. So any, anything in between, like what is the amount of money it will take you to go from pre-seed to seed? That's probably what I would raise. And from seed to, say, Series A, although there's a post-seed round now in between, but let's say from seed to Series A, you know, Series A benchmarks these days are about, um, you know, call it 200K per month or so. And so what is it? How much money do you need to get to that and add in some buffer? So that's those are kind of the two things I would consider. Roughly, how much money do you need to get to the next milestone? Not how much money do you need to survive in the next two years, but how much money do you need to get to the next milestone? And uh, and then how are you going to run a process in order to get leverage on your round? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I get it. And my last question is about uh, the recent changes after COVID. So uh, do you think the investment thesis of VCs, especially the press side, uh, do you think there will be changes like maybe investing in U.S. companies, but most having remote teams? What do you say about it? How do you think? Uh, I think yeah. um, I, I think a lot of things have changed so much and it may actually be too early to say, but I think a few things have changed. One is geography. Um, a lot of investors now are starting to rethink geography. What does it mean to be in Silicon Valley? What does it mean to be a U.S. company? What is it, you know, things like that. Nothing really makes any sense anymore because nobody cares where you actually are because nobody can actually meet you in person. So that's thought number one, and I think that's going to be changing. I think 
investors will more and more invest outside of the Silicon Valley. I mean, that's already a trend that's been happening for a while, but I think it will continue. And then globally speaking, um, if a company is a U.S. incorporated company and is outside the United States, I think more U.S. investors will be open to that. So that's one trend. The second thing is around actually pitching. So previously investors were, they were, they've never really invested based on Zoom conversations, but a lot of investors are getting used to that now. So I think that will actually be immensely helpful to founders because it means that you can spend your time more wisely and not have to fly to San Francisco. Um, you can literally pack in meetings back to back over Zoom and not have to spend money on travel. So I think that's a good thing. But the third thing that I am also hearing at the same time is a lot of the larger investors, um, the ones who might lead a Series A or even a post-seed round, they are being a little bit more conservative because they still don't quite feel comfortable deploying $2 million on a Zoom conversation. So I think while it's been easier than before to get angels and microfunds like ourselves, I think it's also harder now to get larger investment checks, and that just may take longer. And, you know, I'm even hearing that some of these VCs are meeting with people in person in San Francisco, doing, you know, walking meetings with masks on and things like that. But it'll be interesting to see how this changes over the next 12 months, because I think for at least for the next 12 months, it will be this way. But will it continue this way? I don't know. Yeah, yeah, I get it. And these are all my questions and thank for joining Founders of AQ. Well, thanks for the interview. By the way, Founders of AQ is in pre-order and it covers the answers to all the possible questions of a founder in a startup journey, whether revealing life-saving principles for the startup survival path building A-plus themes, creating an evolving machine, setting up a need culture, or interpreting the true path for the fundraising. You can pre-order it from foundersfq.com and you can follow us on Instagram, Twitter, YouTube, and Facebook. <laughs>